Hello there, my friends. Welcome to Take Me to Eternity, where I attempt to filter the world through the Word of God. Um, I'm Leah Fiore, if you don't know, which I'm sure you do. Today we will be talking about Jesus. This is the third part in a four-part series on the Trinity. In the first two podcasts, I talked about the Trinity as a whole in episode one, and for two, we talked about God the Father. Today we'll be talking about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Jesus Christ is, well, he's God. He is one person in the triune Godhead. He is God, but he is not the Father, nor is he the, the Holy Spirit, though all three make up the being of God. The Trinity is the understanding that God is one being, one God, but composed of three distinct persons, each co-equal, co-eternal, same nature, same substance, not three parts to make up a being, but three persons in one being, each fully God, no division in being, but division in personhood. Jesus Christ is probably the most disputed and twisted of the persons in the Godhead, amongst people these days. I really believe the question Jesus posed to Peter, who do you say I am, is so important. If you get it wrong, you don't have a savior. You don't have redemption, and you're talking about somebody else. Some say he's a metaphor. Some say he was a great prophet. Some say he was just a man in right standing with God. Some say he is Satan's brother, and he's he's not, just just saying. Some say he's the Archangel Michael. He's brought down as someone to show us how to be a god or a spiritual guide or how to be good. He is stripped of deity, power, and sometimes even a body, but this isn't who Jesus is, and we will look at who he is through what the Word of God says, which is where all of our truth needs to come from, right? Hebrews 1, 1-13 says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world, and he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels, as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. And when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, and let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he says, Who makes his angels winds, and his ministers a flame of fire? But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Yes, God just called Jesus God. And the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. 
They will perish, but you remain, and they all will become old like a garment, and like a mantle you will roll them up. Like a garment they will be also be changed, but you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. But to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? This passage is such a beautiful look at who Jesus is, his function and the distinction between the personhood, but also the unity of the Godhead. Jesus is God. He is the Son of God. He is who the world was made through. To say he's the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power is to claim him to be God. No other being could be or do those things. Jesus made purification for our sins. None but God can do that. No one has the perfection or ability to be good enough or pure enough to be that sacrifice. Only Jesus could do that because he's God. I know that when I would read that he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become better than the angels, it confused me for a long time. But I was looking at things from Jesus as God and that perspective and forgetting his human aspect. When Jesus, who is one person of the Godhead, as we already said, came down to earth being completely equal with the Father and the Spirit, he chose to humble himself. He chose to humble himself to human form. He chose to allow himself to be in a human body with human wants and needs. He chose to allow himself to be hungry and thirsty and cold. Even to the point of death, he chose to submit to the will of the Father and allow himself to be, as Hebrews 2.7 says, a little lower than the angels. The reason that Jesus submitted to the Father was to fulfill his work for us so that he could be our sacrificial lamb. He could be our redemption, our payment. He didn't, however, stop being God. He just submitted himself. You can't take God out of God. So God exalted him because he had humbled himself. God made him higher than angels because he is still in a human form. Our advocate, our high priest, our Redeemer, all in one. He is our God and our all in all. He holds together the very fabric of the world. When he died and was raised back to life, he became the first fruit to be made alive again in a resurrected, glorified body. If he didn't raise again, we would have no hope for eternity. Because death could not hold him in turn, he will in the end defeat death and resurrect his people and we will have glorified bodies for eternity ruling over the angels. Acts 2.24 says that death could not hold him. Revelation 1.18 says he holds the keys to death in Hades. 1 Corinthians 6.2 and 3 says that we will judge the angels. In this passage, we also see that all the angels worship him. 1 Corinthians 1.2 says, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with all who is in every place, call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, 
their Lord and ours. To call on is to pray to, so we are not only supposed to worship him, but pray to him. We are told to pray to the Father in the name of the Son. We are never told to pray to or worship anyone but God. God doesn't give his glory to another. It says so in Isaiah 48:11, Isaiah 41:8, and I'm sure there's other places. And we know that there are no other gods before, therefore, he is God. Over and over we're told he is the only God. There's no other God but him. So we can only assume that this God that we worship is also three in one. I mean, it's the only way that you can look at it and not twist what the text says, in my opinion. John 5.23 tells us to honor the Son as the Father. God in this passage also calls Jesus God and Lord. It speaks of him being eternal and laying the foundation of the earth and says the works of the heavens are the works of Jesus' hands. It says he is the same. If God is the same forever, then Jesus has always been God and continues to be God. This isn't the only passage that speaks of Jesus and creation. Although I think we'll just keep going and we'll come to them in time. Jesus uses the phrase, I am, over and over again. A lot of people don't see the significance in that. In modern translations, they added he to emph emphasize, which I do understand why they did it, but I think it actually takes away from what he's saying. In the Old Testament, this is the name God gave of himself. But Jesus uses it multiple times, and the Pharisees knew what he was saying because after he would use it, they wanted to stone him to death. They, would, they said that he was equating himself with God. Him calling himself God was not missed by them, but for us, it doesn't have the same impact. It isn't as blatant as some would like it to be. But in all honesty, I think it's even more powerful than if he would have just said, I am God. It's him saying, I am the one and only God. You know the one your fathers worshipped? The one that led your fathers through the desert and did great and mighty works, bringing him into the promised land? Yeah, that one. The one everyone feared. There were a ton of gods, quote unquote, worshipped in those days though we know that there were no gods at all. He was getting past all of that to tell them that he is the creator God, the great I am, the almighty God, the God above all gods. All and all, he is saying, I am. That's all he has to do is say, I am, to say all of those things. It's absolutely amazing that those two words together I am can just be so profound and so deep and so full. We talk about words and how they're powerful. We talk about richness of words and how they can convey a lot in just a little bit. Words are important and so much can be said in such a small amount of words. It's interesting to me when you hear some of the things said about Jesus I think you can dispute Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, and Seventh-day Adventists pretty simply. Mormons say, not that they'll necessarily listen, um, 
Mormons say Jesus is Satan's brother, yet Satan is referred to as an angel if we conclude that Ezekiel 28, 12-18 is symbolic of Satan's fall. He's described as a guardian cherub. Jesus is the creator of all things, including the angels. Therefore, he cannot be Satan's brother. Seventh-day Adventists and Jehovah's Witnesses say that Jesus is the archangel Michael, but the Bible says that Jesus is above the angels, as we just saw. Angels do not receive worship. God alone is the only one worthy of worship. In Matthew 4.10, it says, Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him alone shall you serve. In Jude 9, Michael the archangel dared not bring judgment of blasphemy against Satan and calls on the Lord to rebuke him. Jesus is in fact God incarnate. John 1, 1 through 5 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light, so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. And later it goes on to describe that they're talking about Jesus. Um, they, they tell you straight up who they're talking about. John 1.29 says, The next day he, John, saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the witness, and he is testifying about the light, which is Jesus. John 1, 9 through 19 says, uh, 9 through 18 says, There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his, were his own, did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. Notice he said, he who comes after me, who existed before me. Isn't that a, a conundrum there? For of his fullness we have all received and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Notice it says, the only begotten God and the only begotten Son. It, it, it's telling you, um, it, it tells on itself, you know, Scripture explains Scripture. 
We can clearly see that this is talking about Jesus. I could cite a bunch of references to other passages connecting all the different things said in this passage, but for the sake of time I will not. This, however, is another great passage that shows us that God became man, that he is life and sustains life, that the world was made through him, and that he is our link to being children of God. I love that John said, for he existed before me, because when you look at the events of Jesus' birth, John was born before him, so this is obviously a remark about Jesus' eternality which is a trait that is a trait of God and not man. Man is not eternal. God is eternal. Man will only be eternal in heaven if we make Jesus the Lord of our lives and he makes us eternal. John twenty twenty eight. I guess that wouldn't be eternal because we weren't in the beginning, right? John twenty twenty eight says, Thomas answered, oh, excuse me, there are a lot of places in the Bible we can see Jesus called God, given his attributes or where he himself calls himself the name of God. In John 20, 28, he call, is called God by Thomas. It says, Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. When people say no one thought that he was God when he was alive, that's just not true. Thomas knew who he was. In Psalm 45, it talks about a king, and twice that king is called God. It says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God has anointed you with the oil of joy above your fellows. And that's Psalms 45, 6, and 7. In Hebrews 1.8, that verse is cited and applied directly to Jesus. It's a type and shadow of Jesus, and it calls him what he is. It calls him God. Titus 2.13 says, Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. It says he is the glory of God and Savior, our Redeemer and the one who purifies us for himself. It says we are his own possession. Who but God can say this? I love seeing the different views of the Trinity in the Bible, showing the distinctions between them and unity of their being. This is one that is particularly interesting to me. Revelation 1, 4, and 5 says, John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. Here we see a salutation as they do throughout different books of the Bible. Different letters and such. Grace to you and peace from who? From him who is and who was and who is to come. Who's that? That's the Father. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. That's a strange thing to say, but really the whole book of Revelation is pretty strange. 
that's a view of the Holy Spirit, or at least a lot of people seem to think that it is. Um, the completeness and perfection being shown in the number seven. And we also see from Jesus Christ, whenever they do these salutations, it's written in such a way that you can see the distinction in the persons. Throughout the Bible, the Father is called God, the Son is called God, and the Spirit is called God. So many like to argue that Jesus was never called God, yet he calls himself I Am multiple times, which is the name God used when speaking to Moses. And what's more is the people that Jesus was talking to, as we already talked about, knew what he was calling himself. When he said I Am, they knew exactly what he was saying because they wanted to kill him for it. Of Yahweh, it is said in Isaiah 45, 22, and 23, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. I have sworn by myself. The word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and will not turn back, that to me every knee will bow, every tongue will swear allegiance. So every knee will bow and swear allegiance to Yahweh. But in Philippians 2, 9 through 11, it says of Jesus, For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. They just said, I mean, in not so many words, that Jesus is Yahweh. And in Psalms 102, 25-27, it says of Yahweh, Of old you founded the earth. But we already know who founded the earth, right? You know, we've read Jesus founded the earth. And the heavens are the work of your hands. Even they will perish, but you endure. And all of them will wear out like a garment. Like clothing, you will change them, and they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. We've already heard this before, haven't we? It's like they repeat themselves. But in Hebrews 1, 8-12, it says of Jesus, But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. And they will become old like a garment, and like a mantle you will roll them up. Like a garment they will also be changed, but you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. I know I've already read that, but... Um, I think that it was prudent to read it at that point so that you could see the connection between Psalm 102, 25 to 27 and Hebrews 1, 8 through 12. Jesus is Yahweh. Now in saying this, I'm not arguing that God the Father and the Son are one and the same with no distinction. I'm simply showing that as there is only one God, just one God, Somehow, there's still three persons in that one being of God. One thing I find interesting is Deuteronomy 19.15, A single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity or any sin which he has committed, 
on the evidence of two or three witnesses a matter shall be confirmed. Jesus calls the Father his witness. In a separate place, he says the Spirit is his witness. He makes this point in John 8 that the Father testifies about him. I think this is important. It's an important to catch because he's showing, while saying the Father and I are one, that there's also a distinction between them. That he is able to say, I am me and he is him and the Spirit is himself. All at the same time as saying we are all one. They didn't need to write this out when they wrote the Bible because it was just simply a fact of who God is. It was a lived out reality. They just knew this to be true about God. You can see it in the way they write about God. It's such a cohesive way of over and over and over again, having no problem saying one God, Jesus, the Father, the Holy Spirit, and distinguishing between the three of them. I mean, it was like so much, it was like a nonchalant thing that they they didn't have to um, think about like we do. Colossians 1, 15 through 20 says, He is the image of the invisible God, all f uh, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church, and he is, in, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Now, I just absolutely love this. Such a beautiful view of Jesus' deity and separation from the person of the Father. He is the image of the invisible God. It's just amazing. He is the image of who God is. All things were created by him, and it makes the case of everything. Not just some things, but everything. All things have been created through and for him. He is before all things, therefore Jesus is eternal. Everything is held together by him. Then it goes on to say, It was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things for himself. Why would it make the distinction so many times between the Father and the Son? The Father loved the Son. The Father was pleased with the Son. Over and over again, there is some kind of distinction or difference in who the Father and the Son are. Yet we know that the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. Somehow this amazing being that we call God can be so immense, so amazing, that he can in himself contain three who's in his one what. Three persons in his being, not separate from each other, in parts, but in function and persons. Somehow, I, I mean, yes, it's mind-boggling. Somehow, 
It's amazing. It's just, it's wonderful. I look to the Lord in awe of his wonder, amazed by him. I can't get over his awesomeness. To think that we can contain God in our understanding as humans is foolishness. To think that we can grasp the depth of him is simply stupidity. To say, this is who God says he is, and I believe him, even if I don't fully get it, that's what faith is. The hope for what isn't seen, yet we know to be true. I hope that in some way I have edified you, cleared up some misconception, made it more clear and not more confusing as to who Jesus is and what the Trinity really means. The next episode will be diving into the Holy Spirit, so stay tuned. Till next time, I love you all, and let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us your word to know you better. Thank you for giving us wisdom and understanding so that we may probe your word and grow in your grace. Thank you for guarding us from knowing all the things, for allowing your mystery to spur us on. Thank you for being so much and requiring so little from us. Thank you for loving us even when we were but your enemies. We are so grateful for you and your redemption, for making a way when there is no way we could have made our own. We lift up our lives to you, Lord. May we honor you with our lips, hearts, minds, and deeds. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.